Section 10 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 14, The New Era, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Charles Robert Darwin, Part 2. When the first edition of The Origin of Species was published in 1859, Darwin wrote that he by no means expected to convince experienced naturalists whose minds were stocked with a multitude of facts, all regarded during a long course of years from a point of view directly opposite to his. He looked forward with confidence, however, to the future, to young and rising naturalists, who would be able to view both sides of the question with impartiality. He predicted that when the conclusions reached by him and by Mr. Wallace concerning the origin of species should be generally accepted, there would be a considerable revolution in natural history. Naturalists, for instance, would be forced to acknowledge that the only distinction between species and well-marked varieties is that the latter are known or believed to be connected at the present day by intermediate gradations, whereas species were formerly, though they are not now, thus connected. It might thus come to pass that forms generally acknowledged in 1859 to be merely varieties would thereafter be thought worthy of specific names in which case scientific and common language would come into accordance. In short, Darwin looked forward to the time when species would have to be treated in the same manner as genera are treated by those naturalists who admit that genera are merely artificial combinations made for convenience. Darwin also foresaw that when his theory of the origin of species should be adopted, other and more general departments of natural history would rise greatly in interest. The terms used by naturalists, such terms as affinity, relationship, community of type, paternity, morphology, adaptive characters, rudimentary and abortive organs, etc., would cease to be metaphorical and would have a plain signification. When, he wrote, we no longer look at an organic being as a savage looks at a ship, as something wholly beyond his comprehension, when we regard every production of nature as one which has had a long history, when we contemplate every complex structure and instinct as the summing up of many contrivances, each useful to the possessor, in the same way as any great mechanical invention is the summing up of the labor, the experience, the reason, and even the blunders of numerous workmen, when we thus view each organic being, how far more interesting, I speak from experience, does the study of natural history become? Once more, when we can feel assured that all the individuals of the same species and all the closely allied species of most genera have within a not very remote period descended from one parent and have migrated from some one birthplace, and when we better know the many means of migration than by the light which geology now throws and will continue to throw on former changes of climate and of the level of the land, we shall surely be enabled to trace in an admirable manner the former migrations of the inhabitants of the whole world. When Darwin published The Origin of Species, he was aware that theologians and philosophers seemed to be fully satisfied with the view that each species had been independently created and was immutable. To his own mind, however, it accorded better with what was known of the laws impressed on matter by the Creator that the production and extinction of the past and present inhabitants of the world should have been due to secondary causes, like those determining the birth and death of the individual. When I view, he said, all beings not as special creations, but as the lineal descendants of some few beings which lived long before the first bed of the Cambrian system was deposited, 
they seem to me to become ennobled. And again, as all the living forms of life are the lineal descendants of those which lived long before the Cambrian epoch, we may feel certain that the ordinary succession by generation has never once been broken, and that no cataclysm has desolated the whole world. Hence we may look with some confidence to a secure future of great length. And as natural selection works slowly by and for the good of each being, all corporeal and mental endowments will tend to progress towards perfection. For his own part, Darwin can see no good reason why the views propounded in the two volumes comprising the origin of species should shock the religious feelings of anyone. Touching the likelihood of such a result, he reassured himself by recalling the fact that the greatest discovery ever made by man, namely the law of the attraction of gravity, was attacked by Leibniz as subversive of natural and inferentially of revealed religion. Darwin was confident that if any such impressions were made by his theory, they would prove but transient, and that ultimately men would come to see that it is just as noble a conception of the deity to believe that he created a few original forms capable of self-development into other and needful forms, as to believe that it required the fresh act of creation to supply the voids caused by the action of his laws. 4. It was, as we have said, in 1868 that Darwin published the two volumes collectively titled Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication. It is the second and largely corrected edition brought out in 1875, which we have under our eye. It is the outcome of the views maintained by the author in this work and elsewhere that not only the various domestic races, but the most distinct genera and orders within the same great class, for instance mammals, birds, reptiles, and fishes, are all the descendants of one common progenitor, and the whole vast amount of difference between these forms has primarily arisen from simple variability. Darwin recognized that he who for the first time should consider the subject under this point of view would be struck dumb with amazement. He submits, however, that the amazement ought to be lessened when we reflect that beings almost infinite in number during an almost infinite lapse of time have often had their whole organization rendered in some degree plastic, and that each slight modification of structure which was in any way beneficial under excessively complex conditions of life has been preserved, whilst each which was in any way injurious has been rigorously destroyed. The long-continued accumulation of beneficial variations will infallibly have led to structures as diversified, as beautifully adapted for various purposes, and as excellently coordinated as we see in the animals and plants around us. Hence Darwin regards selection as the paramount power, whether applied by man to the formation of domestic beings or by nature to the production of species. Employing a favorite metaphor, he said, if an architect were to rear a noble and commodious edifice without the use of cut stone, by selecting from the fragments at the base of a precipice wedge-form stones for his arches, elongated stones for his lintels, and flat stones for his roof, we should admire his skill and regard him as the paramount power. Now, the fragments of stone, though indispensable to the architect, bear to the edifice built by him the same relation which the fluctuating variations of organic beings bear to the varied and admirable structures ultimately acquired by their modified descendants. Some critics of the Darwinian theory of the origin of species have declared that natural selection explains nothing, unless the precise cause of each slight individual difference be made clear. Darwin rejoins that if it were explained to a savage utterly ignorant of the art of building how the edifice had been raised, 
stone upon stone, and why wedge-formed fragments were used for the arches, flat stones for the roof, etc., and if the use of each part and of the whole building were pointed out, it would be unreasonable if he declared that nothing had been made clear to him, because the precise cause of the shape of each fragment could not be told. This, in Darwin's opinion, is a nearly parallel case, with the objection that selection explains nothing because we know not the cause of each individual difference in the structure of each being. The shape of the fragments of stone at the base of the hypothetical precipice may be called accidental, but the term is not strictly applicable, for the shape of each depends on a long sequence of events, all obeying natural laws, on the nature of the rock, on the lines of disposition or cleavage, on the form of the mountain, which depends on its upheaval and subsequent denudation, and lastly, on the storm or earthquake which throws down the fragments. In the regard to use, however, to which the fragments may be put, their shape may be strictly said to be accidental. Here, Darwin acknowledged that we are brought face to face with a great difficulty in alluding to which he felt that he was traveling beyond his proper province. An omniscient creator must have foreseen every consequence which resulted from the laws imposed by him. But can it be reasonably maintained that the creator intentionally ordered, if we use the words in any ordinary sense, that certain fragments of rock should assume certain shapes so that the builder might erect his edifice? If the various laws which have determined the shape of each fragment were not predetermined for the builder's sake, can it be maintained with any greater probability that he specially ordained for the sake of the breeder each of the innumerable variations in our domestic animals and plants, many of these variations being of no service to man and not beneficial, far more often injurious to the creatures themselves? Did he ordain that the crop and tail feathers of the pigeons should vary in order that the fancier might make his grotesque pouter and fantail breeds? Did he cause the frame and mental qualities of the dog to vary in order that a breed might be formed of indomitable ferocity with jaws fitted to pin down the bull for man's brutal sport? It is obvious, however, that if we give up the principle in one case, if we do not admit that the variations of the primeval dog were intentionally guided in order that the greyhound, for instance, that perfect image of symmetry and vigor might be formed, no shadow of reason can be assigned for the belief that variations similar in nature and the result of the same general laws which have been the groundwork through natural selection of the formation of the most perfectly adapted animals in the world, man included, were intentionally and specially guided. Darwin, therefore, was unable to follow the distinguished botanist, Professor Asa Gray, in his belief that variation has been led along certain beneficial lines, like a stream along definite and useful lines of irrigation. Darwin's conclusion was that if we assume that each particular variation was from the beginning of all time preordained, then that plasticity of organization which leads to many injurious deviations of structure as well as the redundant power of reproduction which inevitably leads to a struggle for existence and, as a consequence, to a natural selection or survival of the fittest, must appear to us superfluous laws of nature. 5. Next to the origin of species, the volume which sets forth Darwin's theory of the descent of man naturally excited the most widespread attention. This book, which took the author three years to write, was published in 1871, a second and carefully revised edition appearing three years later. The data brought together occupy more than 600 pages. 
the conclusion reached may be summed up in a few paragraphs. The principal induction from the evidence is that man is descended from some highly less organized form. It was Darwin's conviction that the grounds upon which this conclusion rests will never be shaken, for the close similarity between man and the lower animals in embryonic development, as well as in the numerable points of structure and constitution, both of high and of the most trifling importance, the rudiments which he retains, and the abnormal reversions to which he is occasionally liable, are facts which cannot be disputed. Viewed in the light of our knowledge of the whole organic world, their meaning is unmistakable. The great principle of evolution stands out clear and firm when these groups of facts are considered in connection with others, such as the mutual affinities of the members of the same group, their geographical distribution in past and present times, and their geological succession. It is pronounced incredible that all these facts should speak falsely. He who is not content to look like a savage at the phenomena of nature as disconnected cannot any longer believe that man is the product of a separate act of creation. He will be forced to admit that the close resemblance of the embryo of man to that, for instance, of a dog, the construction of his skull, limbs, and whole frame on the same plan with that of other mammals, independently of the uses to which the parts may be put, the occasional reappearance of various structures, for instance, of several muscles which man does not normally possess, but which are common to the quadrumana and a crowd of analogous facts, all point in the plainest manner to the conclusion that man is the co-descendant with other mammals of a common progenitor. Darwin recognized that the high standard of our intellectual powers and moral disposition constitutes the greatest difficulty which presents itself after we have been driven by the mass of biological evidence to accept his conclusion as to the origin of man. Touching the point, he observes, everyone who admits the principle of evolution must see that the mental powers of the higher animals, which are the same in kind with those of man, though so different in degree, are capable of advancement. Thus, the interval between the mental powers of one of the higher apes and of a fish, or between those of an ant and scale insect, is immense. Yet their development does not offer any special difficulty, for with our domesticated animals the mental faculties are certainly variable, and the variations are inherited. No one doubts that their mental faculties are of the utmost importance to animals in a state of nature. Therefore, the conditions are favorable for their development through natural selection. The same conclusion may be extended to a man. The intellect must have been all-important to him even at a very remote period, as enabling him to invent and use language, to make weapons, tools, traps, etc., whereby, with the aid of his social habits, he long ago became the most dominant of all living creatures. It is further pointed out that a great stride in the development of man's intellect must have followed as soon as the half-art and half-instinct of language came into use, for the continued use of language must have reacted on the brain and produced an inherited effect, and this again will have reacted on the improvement of language. The largeness of the brain in man relatively to his body, compared with the size of that organ in the lower animals, is attributable in chief part to the early use of some simple form of language, that engine which affixes signs to all sorts of objects and qualities, and excites trains of thought which would never arise from the mere impression of the senses, or if they did arise, could not be followed out. The higher intellectual powers of man, such as those of ratiocination, abstraction, self-consciousness, etc., probably follow from the continued improvement and exercise of the other mental faculties. 
How man's moral qualities came to be developed is an interesting problem which is considered by Darwin at some length. He holds that their foundation lies in the social instincts under which term are included family ties. These instincts are highly complex, and in the case of the lower animals, give special tendencies toward certain definite actions. But the more important elements are love and the distinct emotion of sympathy. Animals endowed with the social instincts take pleasure in one another's company, warn one another of danger, defend and aid one another in many ways. These instincts do not extend to all the individuals of the species, but only to those of the same community. As, however, they are highly beneficial to the species, they have in all probability been acquired through natural selection. In Darwin's judgment, the moral nature of man has reached its present standard partly through the advancement of his reasoning powers, and consequently of a just public opinion, but especially from his sympathies having been rendered more tender and widely diffused through the effects of habit, example, instruction, and reflection. It is pronounced not improbable that after long practice, virtuous tendencies may be inherited. Let us look a little more closely at the matter, for the difficulty of explaining morality forms one of the greatest obstacles to the acceptance of the Darwinian account of the descent of man. What do we mean by a moral being? Manifestly, a moral being is one who is capable of reflecting on his past actions and their motives, and of approving of some while he disapproves of others. Man is the one being who certainly deserves this designation, though attempts have recently been made to show that a rudimentary morality may be traced in some of the lower animals. In the fourth chapter of the book before us, Darwin undertakes to demonstrate that the moral sense follows, first, from the enduring and ever-present nature of the social instincts, secondly, from man's appreciation of the approbation and disapprobation of his fellows, and thirdly, from the high activity of his mental faculties, with past impressions extremely vivid. In these latter respects, he differs from the lower animals. Owing to this condition of mind, man cannot avoid looking both backwards and forwards and comparing past impressions. Hence, after some temporary desire or passion has mastered his social instincts, he reflects and compares the now weakened impression of such past impulses with the ever-present social instincts, and he then feels that sense of dissatisfaction which all unsatisfied instincts leave behind them, and resolves to act differently for the future. This dissatisfaction Darwin would identify with conscience. Any instinct permanently stronger or more enduring than another gives rise to a feeling which we express by saying that it ought to be obeyed. Darwin suggests that a pointer dog, if able to reflect on his past conduct, would say to himself, I ought, as indeed we say of him, have pointed at that hare and not have yielded to the passing temptation of hunting it. The belief in God has often been advanced as not only the greatest, but the most decisive of all the distinctions between man and the lower animals. Darwin brings forward in the book before us a quantity of reasons for holding it to be impossible that this belief is innate or instinctive in man. In some races of men, for instance, we encounter a total want of the idea of God. On the other hand, a belief in all-pervading spiritual agencies seems to be universal it apparently follows from a considerable advance in man's reason, and from a still greater advance in the faculties of imagination, curiosity, and wonder. I am aware, says Darwin, that the assumed instinctive belief in God has been used by many persons as an argument for his existence. But this is a rash argument, as we should thus be compelled to believe in the existence of many cruel and malignant spirits, only a little more powerful than man. 
for the belief in them is far more general than in a beneficent deity. The idea of a universal and beneficent creator does not seem to arise in the mind of man until he has been elevated by long-continued culture. How does the belief in the advancement of man from some low organized form bear on the belief in the immortality of the soul? Sir John Lubbock has proved that the barbarous races of man possess no clear belief of the kind, but as Darwin continually reminds us, arguments derived from the primeval beliefs of savages are of little or to no avail on either side of a question. Attention is directed by Darwin to the more relevant fact that few persons feel any anxiety from the impossibility of determining at what precise period in the development of the individual, from the first trace of a minute germinal vesicle, the man becomes an immortal being. He submits that there should be no greater cause for anxiety because the period cannot possibly be determined in the gradually ascending organic scale. Darwin was well aware that the conclusions arrived at in the work before us, namely that man is descended from some lowly organized form, would be highly distasteful to many. The very persons, however, who regard the conclusions with distaste admit without hesitation that they are descended from barbarians. Darwin recalls the astonishment which he himself felt on first seeing a party of Fugians on a wild and broken shore when the reflection rushed upon his mind that such men had been his ancestors. These men were absolutely naked and bedaubed with paint, their long hair was tangled, their mouths frothed with excitement, and their expression was wild, startled, and distrustful. They possessed hardly any arts, and like wild animals lived on what they could catch. They had no government and were merciless to everyone not of their own small tribe. Remembering the impression made on him by the Fugians, Darwin suggested that he who has seen a savage in his native land will not feel much shame if forced to acknowledge that the blood of some more humble creature flows in his veins. For my own part, he says, I would as soon be descended from that heroic little monkey who braved his dreaded enemy in order to save the life of his keeper, or from that old baboon, who, descending from the mountains, carried away in triumph his young comrade from a crowd of astonished dogs, as from a savage who delights to torture his enemies, offers up bloody sacrifices, practices infanticide without remorse, treats his wives like slaves, knows no decency, and is haunted by the grossest superstitions. Darwin holds, in fine, that man may be excused for feeling some pride at having risen, though not through his own exertions, to the very summit of the organic scale. It is further submitted that the fact of his having thus risen, instead of having been aboriginally placed there, may give him hope for a still higher destiny in the distant future. As a scientist, however, Darwin is not concerned with hopes or fears, but simply with the truth, as man's reason enables him to discern it. We must recognize, he thinks, as the truth established by an overwhelming array of inductive evidence that man, with all his noble qualities, with sympathy which he feels for the most debased, with benevolence which extends not only to other men but to the humblest living creature, with his godlike intellect which has penetrated into the movements and constitution of the solar system, with all these exalted powers, man still bears in his bodily frame the indelible stamp of his lowly origin. 6. We have said that Darwin's theory of the origin of species, together with its corollary, the descent of man, has met with almost universal acceptance by scientists. We have to use the qualifying adverb because some of Darwin's contemporaries, including Virchow and Owen, not to mention St. George Mavart and the Duke of Argyll, have withheld their adhesion. 
Since his death, moreover, his disciples have tended to split into two schools. On the one hand, Weissman has rejected the Lamarckian factors, the effective use and disuse upon organs and the transmissibility of acquired characters. The importance of these factors has been emphatically reasserted, on the other hand, by Lancaster and others. Whether biologists, however, range themselves in the neo-Darwinian or the neo-Lamarckian camp, the value of the principle of natural selection is acknowledged by all, and nobody now asserts the independent creation and permanence of species. Authorities. The Complete Works of Darwin, published by D. Appleton and Company. The Works of Alfred Russell Wallace. Francis Darwin's Life of Charles Darwin. Huxley's Writings, Passim. Hackle's Natural History of Creation, Weissman's Studies in the Theory of Descent and Subsequent Papers, Romaines's Scientific Evidences of Organic Evolution, Lancaster's Degeneration, Fisk's Darwinism and Other Essays. For adverse criticism of Darwin, read Mavart's Genesis of Species and the Duke of Argyle's Unity of Nature. End of section 10.